privilege to be opening up God's Word with each of you this morning. I hope you've already turned to Genesis 6. If you're new to our gathering this morning, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer, and we're glad you're here. We hope that you take some time to look over the bulletin later on today to learn more about who we are as a church. And you can uh, take a few moments before you leave today to fill the visitor page on the back of the bulletin. You can hand that to me after the service. I'd like to meet you, or you can take it to one of our members at the connections table as you leave today. But I do want to inform you of a couple things before we look into the Word of God. First, I want to inform that our, for our members, directly after the service, there's an optional budget meeting in the side foyer. We'll go over this as well at the next week's member meeting. But if you want uh, an advanced look at it and have any, uh, think you'll have any questions and want some dialogue, David Lawrence will be leading uh, a meeting. We'll pass out copies of the budget proposal after the service today. Also, please make note, our next baptism is next Friday at 4 p.m. over at Lemuridian and Garhud. We'll meet at 4 to celebrate new life in Christ and see this picture, this beautiful display of the gospel unveiled before our very own eyes. Next Friday at 4, then at 5, we'll have a catered meal for everyone, and then at 6, we'll have our next members meeting. So 4 and 5, up until 6, all are welcome to celebrate baptism. That'll be followed by our next members meeting. And also this evening, one last thing, we have a singles gathering over at Brian and Joanne Parks' house in Jumeirah. This will be a great time for fellowship and encouragement for the single adults of Redeemer. We'll be gathering for conversation around the topic of what does the Bible say about singleness and how can singles here in the UAE live for the glory uh, of God. So this gathering is for post-university students uh, who are single and working and living here in the UAE. You'll find directions in the, in the announcements section of the bulletin. Well, as we look at God's word, let's go to him and ask for his help in prayer. Father, we pray that in these minutes now that you would cause our souls to stir with delight. Father, cause our souls to stir with delight as we glance at the beauty of your gospel of grace over these next minutes. Father, raise our affections, move us to confession and embolden us to live lives of faith here in the UAE. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've ever gone into a Christian bookstore, maybe in your home country, you go to the children's books section, you're likely to find a plethora of books about Noah's Ark. It's a story that we're all familiar with, whether we're a believer in Christ or not. It's a story that captures our imagination. And my kids are always in awe of the fact that all the animals in the world, at least two of each of them, on one boat, a floating zoo. Now the story is so intriguing that people throughout history have tried to unearth remains of the ark. They've gone on searches for the ark. Others have made movies about it. And for good reason. It's a remarkable story. But friends, it's not just a story. It's human history. See, once upon a time, God spoke to a man and gave him instructions to build this huge ark, this boat in the middle of the desert. Once upon a time, animals actually walked up onto this boat in pairs, giraffes, zebras, and all the species of animals on the earth on the boat. Once upon a time, God covered the whole earth, all of it, 
with a flood, with waters. Once upon a time, total destruction was leveled upon every human being and every living creature outside the ark. Now, it's a sobering story, humbling story. This is not a happy-go-lucky children's story featuring a whimsical zoo. You don't see lions and zebras and lizards huddled around a campfire holding hands singing Kumbaya. It's not the picture that we get as we read Genesis chapter 6. It's actually the furthest thing from our minds. Now this story, this history, what it does is it teaches us about the depth of our sin, about the depth of our depravity. And yet at the same time, it reveals God's scandalous redeeming grace toward wicked sinners. And it gives us a picture of what faith in God should look like. So if you're taking notes this morning, here are the three points that we see in the passage. It'll serve as our outline today. First, we'll see our wretched sin. Clearly in display, Genesis 6, we'll see our wretched sin. Second, we'll see God's redeeming grace. God's redeeming grace. And third, we'll see Noah's crazy faith. Wretched sin, redeeming grace. Finally, we'll see crazy faith. Well, let's look first at our wretched sin. You certainly got a taste of that as Chris just read through the flow of the entire passage. The wickedness of the first four verses catches our attention. We see that from Adam and Eve down to Cain, down to Lamech, now throughout the earth, sin has spread. These first four verses have been the subject of debate for centuries. Most scholars consider these verses among the hardest to interpret in the entire Bible. And the question is, who are these sons of God, in verse 2, that marry the daughters of men? Well, historically there have been three positions held by biblical scholars. One view is that these sons of God are fallen angels. The phrase sons of God occurs three other times in our Old Old Testament, including Job 1 and Job 2, and each time it's used of angelic beings. So those who hold this view also look at Jude verses 6 and 7 that says that there were angels who left their abode. In verse 7, they did so in a similar way as seen in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, those who hold this view also look at 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5, and they put it all together and say that angels left their heavenly abode and had relations with women, married women. Well, those who reject this view say, well, it can't be angels because angels don't have bodies and therefore could not produce offspring. Also, there's no other reference to angels in the first six chapters of Genesis. And the phrase take wives that you find here is the standard Old Testament term for marrying. And Jesus explicitly tells us in the Gospels that angels don't marry. Even the Jude passage this reference is not talking about marriage but fornication. Well, there's a second view is that these sons of God were human kings. They were authorities. They were rulers. Ones that threw away all moral restraint. They just threw it away. They married whomever they chose, perhaps as many as they chose, maybe sinking into such deep depravity, building the first harems. Well, a third view is that the sons of God here refer to the line of Seth. We've seen Cain and Abel. We've seen this 
this line of Seth, the son Seth that God gives to Adam and Eve, of which Jesus will come. And, and they say, well, in Luke 3, we see a genealogy. It was Seth is written there, the son of Adam. And then Adam is said to be the son of God. So the argument is that these are actually regular human beings. You have here the sons of God from Seth's line. They become so corrupt, so wicked, so evil that they take any woman they want and not just in the line of Seth. You, know, you see this throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Bible. You see the constant theme of warning against intermarriage of believers and non-believers, of the godly and the ungodly. Well, either way you land, there are problems with each of the three views I've mentioned the final two seem to negate what appears to be straightforward, angelic language. Well, I think Bruce Walt, the biblical scholar, I think he says it well when he surmises that it might be best to see in this episode a combination of these views. Perhaps to combine the angelic interpretation with the divine king view that these sons of God were tyrants, judges, perhaps even kings who were to some extent demon-possessed. Or perhaps these sons of God really were people in the line of Seth, men in the line of Seth who were demon-possessed. There was some demonic activity. These seem to make the most sense to me and biblically faithful. But whatever view the expositor takes, whatever view you take on these verses, the passage as a whole is clearly portraying the wickedness of the human race. That wickedness had taken over the entire earth. That evil was everywhere. This seems to have led to the birth of the Nephilim, often translated as giants or ancient heroes. There were men of renown, men of their own glory. There were men who sought to make a name for themselves. Pride, we see in the Tower of Babel that across the whole earth, man sought to be like God, sought to approach God and get to God on their own. No, we see pride, we see arrogance, we see wickedness now covering the earth. Man Continue to spiral, spiral downward. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at the language there. Every, only, evil. I mean, all are indicted. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That language couldn't be any stronger here in the text. Evil was running rampant through the fields of the earth. And it caused great damage, not just to each other, but to God. Did you catch that? Perhaps what's most interesting in our passage is God's response to their sin. Look at verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Though God's heart was filled with pain. Now you look at this passage and you're upset about divine judgment. Well, God is even more upset. You look at the passage and you can't stand hearing about the flood. You can't stand that God would just destroy mankind in this flood. Well, friend, God can't stand it either. Well, the word grieved it's an odd word to be used of God at first glance. It, it means bitter anguish, deepest frustration. It means that God voluntarily bound his heart and life with us. He didn't have to. He didn't create us out of some emotional need. He bound his heart to us so that his joy is so deeply bound up with ours. And so when we suffer, he actually feels pain. 
the most shattering pain possible. Now, God regretting the making of man doesn't mean God changed his mind. It doesn't mean God made a mistake. It doesn't mean that God was caught off guard, that this was a surprise to him. And we're not open theists who believe that God doesn't know the future and that he created us and it was a big risk, that he didn't know what would happen and we could sin, he didn't, didn't know it. No, no we, we reject that errant theology. No, God is sovereign over eternity past and he's sovereign over eternity future. He's sovereign over everything. Now, what this indicates here, what this language indicates is God's disgust for sin. Now, elsewhere, the writers of the Old Testament are emphatic that God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't, doesn't make mistakes. God does not repent in the human sense of the term. Let me give you just one example of which is very similar in language to this passage. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel had just been told by the Lord to bring judgment against Saul, against King Saul throughout the entire chapter. Very similar language to Genesis 6 is used. And we're told that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, if you only had that verse and only had verse 6 here in chapter 6, you might be tempted to think, well, the Lord actually makes mistakes. Sometimes he just doesn't get it right. He should have laid aside Saul and he should have picked a real king. He should have gone just right to David or someone who is a man after God's own heart. And he made a mistake. He regretted it. He changed his mind. He wished he had done it differently. But back in that same passage in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 29, in the same episode, it says that the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Pretty clear. The language in Genesis 6 is intended to make emphatic how God relates and responds to our sin. The language is not to be played down. We shouldn't apologize for it. We shouldn't try to cover it up. There's purpose in the choice of the words. The language ought to be played up. It should be shown to emphasize how much God hates sin and is affected by it. It also indicates that there's something of a divine emotional life. At least in some ways. Some sense corresponding to ours. God's emotional life, though, is perfect because he is perfect. God is not fickle. He's not reactionary like us. But God does have emotion. Now, sin causes deep injury against God. We need to know that there are no victimless sins. You know, those sins in the privacy of your home, perhaps when no one else is looking, no one else is around, where you think no one will be hurt, no one will be affected. Well, friend, you need to know that God knows all sin. And all sin deeply grieves him. All of it. All sin injures your soul and God as well as all your relationships. Now the injury was so great that in verse 7, God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then in verse 11 and following, God says that the violence had filled the earth and that everyone would be destroyed. Now, this is not a cosmic temper tantrum. No, God created everything and has a right to dispose of his creation if he so chooses. You know, as you read this, 
do you see the wretchedness of sin? God's prized creation, his image bearers, little statues of him to show the world what he's like. And we betrayed his love. We betrayed him. We turned from God. Now, sin kills us. It affects our relationships. And most importantly, it grieves God. Now, let that sink in for a minute. Before we just move on, let it sink in that our sin grieves God. The question that we all face then is, why don't I grieve over my sin the way that God grieves over my sin? Why doesn't my sin distress me like it does God? Friend, your sin is killing you and it is grieving God. Are you broken over it this morning? As you look over your sin over the past week, are you broken over it? Are you grieved over it? Are you broken over the fact that it grieves the living God of the universe? Or are you merely upset over the consequences you face because of your sin? See, this Genesis 6 world isn't an isolated incident. It's not an era of history that we've moved on from, as if to say, well, they were bad back then. Look at us today. Look at how good we've become. No, the Genesis 6 world is our world. It's our story. Human trafficking, child abuse, murder, prostitution, anger, rape, bitterness, unforgiveness, gossip, slander, alcoholism, vanity, impurity, political corruption, war, cheating, gluttony, lust, gossip. And the list goes on and on and on. As Rod read from Romans 3 earlier, there is none who are righteous, not even one. Only evil all the time. But friends, this is a sobering passage. A sobering portion of Scripture. It's bad news. Do you feel the weight of this bad news? Well, thankfully, the story doesn't stop there. In verse 6, it goes on, and there is good news. There's God's redeeming grace. That's the second point in the passage this morning. We've seen our wretched sin, but thankfully, praise the Lord, there is God's redeeming grace. God is grieved. God is broken. God is injured. God is hurt. But he also gives grace, even in spite of our sin. Now, this is astounding. We see in verse 8, we see the first use of the word grace in our Bibles. Our ESV translation translates the word favor. But Noah found favor, grace, unmerited favor in the eyes of the Lord. Unmerited divine favor in spite of sin. It was undeserved merit. It's nothing he did. See, before we see Noah do anything for God, before we see Noah exhibit crazy faith, we see that grace has come to him. You know, all other religions of the world say that you must work your way to God. Find some karma. Do your best to follow the rules and hope that maybe, just maybe, at the end of your life, your good works will outweigh your bad works and you'll get to go to paradise. Just work hard. Follow these rules. Well, last week I had a leisurely read through the classic book by John Bunyan 
called Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps some of you have read through this book. It's a parable. It's a fun little read. It's a parable about a man named Christian. Christian's on a journey to the celestial city. He's trying to get there. He's trying to get to this heavenly city because he's got this big burden on his back. It's weighing him down. He can't get it off. It's a sin. And he feels so weighed down by it. He'll do anything he can to get someone to take the burden off of him. And so he goes on this journey to the celestial city. And on his journey, he, he meets all kinds of interesting people along the way, including one named Mr. Interpreter. He meets this interpreter. And on his journey, Mr. Interpreter leads him into this dusty parlor. It's this room. It's filled with layer upon layer of dust. And the interpreter says, here's a broom. Why don't you go sweep up this room? And so Christian begins sweeping. He sweeps as hard as he can, keeps going and going and going, and dust just begins flying everywhere. It, it almost chokes him. He gets choked up, and he keeps going and trying to sweep. And all he notices that he's doing is just swirling the dust up in the air. He can't get rid of it. And then all of a sudden, the interpreter comes and sprinkles water onto the ground and then says, Christian, why don't you go back again? Why don't you try again to sweep up the dust? This time, Really quickly, he sweeps up the whole room. All the dust comes up. And Christian says, interpreter, what does this mean? What are you trying to show me? And the interpreter says, Christian, the parlor, this room filled with dust, is the heart of a man never saved by the sweet grace of the gospel. See, the dust is the original sin, the accumulating sin that has defiled the whole man. Sweeping apart from the water was sweeping by the law. Sweeping in your own strength but the water poured out the water poured out was christ it was the gospel see on your own the room can't be swept it choked you living by the law did more damage than good the water came to show you that when the gospel comes into the sweet and precious influences of the heart sin is vanquished subdued and the soul is made clean see friends all other religions say just keep sweeping just keep sweeping up work harder try harder are you still sinning well you must just not be doing things right so here's another way to sweep sweep this way here's another strategy of how to hold the broom another strategy of how to sweep just go harder and harder try better think better thoughts use this strategy but all other religions of the world just give you another way to sweep without the living water but when you do that all you end up doing is just swirling your sin up in the air and back down again It does nothing to get it away from you. No, friend, we need grace. We need favor. We need the good news of the gospel. Friends, we need to take God's side against our sin. We need to realize that we stand under the judgment of God. But that the good news is that Jesus provides grace for us. That unlike Noah, who needed an ark to save himself, Jesus took his blameless and righteous life He took the world's condemnation upon himself. The wrath of God was fully absorbed on the cross, completely and decisively. He provided righteousness. He defeated death. He disarmed Satan and the rulers of the world. He purchased us as a ransom payment. He secured our access to God's glory. Oh friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, I urge you, follow him. To be saved, you repent of your sin. You just acknowledge that you can't do it on your own and you believe in Christ to save you. You rely heavily upon Him and Christ. 
Christ and the gospel, you rely on Jesus. Friend, he has shown you grace by giving you another day so that you might believe. I mean, look back at verse 3. Look at this grace he's shown. Verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, God is perfectly loving. God is perfectly just. God is perfectly holy. God cannot let wickedness go on forever. And it seems like at this point he set a clock at 120 years. And the clock begins ticking at this moment. And man and woman had 120 years to repent, and then the judgment of the flood would come. Friend, this is redeeming grace. Because as we read this passage, the question isn't, why did God destroy the earth in a flood? Oh God, how could you do this? How could you destroy the earth in a flood? That's the wrong question. The right question to ask is, God, why did you wait so long to do it? It's the right question to ask, and it's because of his grace. He gives them time to repent. Oh friend, if you're here and you don't follow Christ, here's your warning of impending judgment that it might come in 120 years, it might come tomorrow, we don't know. The Bible tells us Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. And every day that you look out your window of your flat or your villa and you look out and you see the sun rise, every day you see the sun rise is God's grace to you. Every day you look out and you see that this world, that God has given you another day in this world, it is your grace. You know, there's a story that I laughed at this week when I read it. It's a story of a traveling atheist evangelist. If you've heard of this, there's an atheist evangelist trying to put forward the belief that there is no God. And he would travel around back in the day in Scotland and he would go to churches and he would want to debate the pastors of these churches and I guess for whatever reason, sometimes these churches would allow the debate. And so the atheist speaker would get up there and he'd have quite a humorous and powerful speech. And he'd get up and say that there is no God. And he'd list why. And he'd spend the whole time preaching a message anti-Bible, anti-gospel, anti-God. And then at the end of his speech, he'd get out his pocket watch and he'd, he'd lay it out on the podium and he'd set a timer on it for three minutes. And he said this, he said, I'm going to now give God three minutes to strike me dead for blaspheming him. And he'd lay out the watch and set the timer and just stop. And he would let awkward silence just go on for three minutes. One minute, two minutes, three minutes, nothing. And then when the alarm went off, he would pick up his pocket watch and he'd slam it shut and he'd look to the Christian speaker and say, your turn. And it was powerful. It was a powerful message. And he usually, often, perhaps because of his eloquence, make some points, build some laughs. But on one occasion, he met his match. And after he said that, your turn, he looked over to the Christian pastor. This pastor said to the traveling atheist evangelist, he said, do you really think you could exhaust the patience of God in three minutes? Three minutes? See, God in His grace was given even that man, this atheist evangelist, time to repent. And He's allowing time for you to repent. No, God is patient. He warns the wicked. Oh, friend, understand this and let it shatter your pride. God is patient. He warns you. He warns me. See, we want our justice and we want it yesterday. 
we look at the flood and in some sense we can't believe it, but if we were God, we would have exacted judgment far earlier. Though God is patient, he is gracious, he is kind, and he waits. Well, friends, I don't know when judgment will come, but if you're here and you don't follow Christ, you need to know that at any time Christ could come. See, in the flood, there was no place to run, there was no place to hide. Revelation 6 When the final judgment comes, we see that in that day there will be a great earthquake. That the sky will vanish like a scroll rolled up. The stars will fall. The sun will become black. And those who don't know God will flee seeking to hide themselves in caves. But there will be nowhere to hide from God. Now we don't have a boat to get into, do we? We don't have a boat to get into, but Christ is the ark, isn't he? Christ is the ark. See, in Christ, when we hide in him, we rise above the tide of that final judgment. See, it's in the ark of Christ that we are shielded from the pouring waters of judgment. We need to look at Noah and be astonished that God saved him and his sons, their small family, that he saved them out of the entire world. A Christian friend, We need to be astonished in the same way when we look at our lives. That God would save me. That God would save you. It's astonishing. It is simply astonishing that He chose me. That He saved me. That He redeemed me. What? Have you looked at my life? Have you looked at your life? Friend, never get over this. Never move past it. Never forget it. Never stop relying on it. Never wake up in the morning without thinking of it. Never go to bed at night without meditating on the grace that God has shown you. Oh, friend, it is stunning. It is astonishing that God poured forth His wrath, His judgment, that the floods of His judgment poured upon His Son, Jesus. Instead of on us. Friend, he poured it on his son so that we could climb onto the ark of Christ. To safety and to security and to fellowship and to riches and to joy forever and ever and ever. Friends, if you don't know that grace... Come to him. Now you see, Noah was a man of faith, but he was a man of faith not before grace came, but after he saw the greatness of God and after he received grace. That's transforming grace, that's redeeming grace. It always leads to crazy faith. That's the third point of our passage. We've seen our wretched sin, we've seen God's redeeming grace. We also see Noah's crazy faith. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now grace produces righteousness. This is why verse 8 comes before verse 9. Noah didn't earn God's favor. There's not even a connecting causal participle between them as if to say, well, Noah found grace because he was righteous. Because Noah had faith, then God chose him. As if God scanned over the entire earth looking for whoever was a good man. No. 
No, it was all grace. God loved Noah solely because he loved Noah. God loved Noah solely because he chose Noah. And God gives Noah a task. God says, okay, Noah, here you go. Here's what I want you to do. I need you to take a little holiday off work for, say, 120 years. Go to your boss. Get a little time off. You're going to be busy for a while. I want you to build this ark. Now, I'm not even sure Noah would have known what an ark is. There weren't exactly replicas built around the earth. But God says, go build it. And this ark had three levels that could fit over 500 modern-day railroad cars in it. It was almost 150 meters long. This is a massive vessel. Listen to this. God tells Noah to do this when he was at the ripe young age of 500. This was one old brother. 500 years old. No holiday at the beach. He was getting to work. And so every day, other than the Sabbath, Noah went out, perhaps with his sons, building this behemoth structure called an ark. Puts his tool belt on, wakes up the boys, works on a boat in the middle of the desert. No wonder it took 12 decades to complete. It was a big job, and you can't even count the number of trees that would have had to been cut down and then replanted to only cut them down again. Now, the amount of labor would have crushed any person, but year after year they worked for 120 years. Well, everyone else laughed. You can imagine the ridicule he and his family would have faced throughout the years. They must have thought this guy was crazy. For 120 years, people would have said, Noah, why are you building a big boat in the desert? There's no water. And Noah just saying, well, no, there will be. It's going to rain. They were saying, rain? What's that? They'd never seen any rain. Oh, actually, it's, it's water, guys, falling from the sky. Sure. Whatever you say, Noah. Noah presses on, and what else did he have to do? Well, load pairs of every animal onto the ark. And then the passage ends. The final verse of this passage ends, and it says Noah did what? Everything. All that God commanded. The book of Hebrews writes that by faith Noah when warned about things not yet seen, and holy fear built an ark to save his family. Now Noah gave his life away. Likely mocked, ridiculed, even fought for building a boat in the desert. But clearly obedience to God and faithfulness to him was more important. Now God's transforming grace always leads to giving your life away. As you think about God's love for you and it melts your heart, your life will be nothing to you. As you marvel at God's word, as you memorize it, as you meditate on it, as you're mesmerized by Christ and the gospel, you can't help but give your life away. Friends, this should be our response to the grace that God has shown us. It should cause us to give our lives away. In closing, let me give, you, let me give us just three ways we can exhibit crazy faith here in our country. First friend, fellow Christian, give your life away to fellow Christians. Give your life away to fellow brothers 
and sisters in Christ. Work tirelessly at speaking God's word to others. And the Christian needs other Christians to speak God's word to them and to marvel at the beauty of Christ together. Friends, don't ever say at Redeemer that I, I don't have a ministry. I don't have something to do. No, friends, we are unapologetically not programmatic here at Redeemer. And we could easily host all kinds of different ministries. We could get so busy going to events and doing programs that we miss Jesus. We miss pouring our lives into each other, and instead we end up just doing things together. And we're a band of Christians doing ministry together. So our marriage ministry is two married couples getting together to confess their sin and to pray for one another on a regular basis. Our singles ministry are single adults gathering to pray about proclaiming Christ in the workplace and how they might do that together. It's a married lady who's been married for 30 years reaching out and inviting a young single adult and a widow over to her house for dinner and prayer. Now, our sports ministry is a few members setting up a basketball game in their workplace to build bridges to their co-workers and perhaps having dinner afterwards to discuss faith and the Bible. Oh, friends, speak God's word to one another. Join a community group. Meet up with a friend to study the Bible. And let people in your life. Have the faith to let people in your life. And don't run in and out of this community. I was encouraged this past week doing a membership chat with a perspective uh, member here. And I love these membership chats. I love hearing stories of what God has done in people's lives. But towards the beginning of the membership chat, this perspective member told me that I called out his sin in a sermon. I was thinking, oh my gosh, what did I say? <laughs> what did I say? I didn't know I called out someone specific and called out their sin. And he said, well, no, actually what you said one day is you said that you challenged us specifically not to run in and out of the church service, not to be one who comes in late and sits in the back and one who leaves uh, before uh, the end of the, the sermon, the end of the song, just kind of in and out without saying hi to anyone. He said, when you said that, you were, you were speaking to me. You were, you were speaking to me. I felt convicted. Oh, friend, if that's you, don't let it be you. Stay until they kick us out of here. Be in fellowship. Be in community. Let people into your, your life. We need you. Don't stress if and when we find out about your sin and shortcomings. In fact, don't run, don't stress, but tell us about it. You're not alone in your struggle in sin. James 5 says to confess our faults to one another. Well, here's the thing. The church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Here's the great truth about our church and every church is we're all messed up. All of us. Know that the cross of Christ, when we look at it, criticizes us more than anyone else can. Have you thought about that? That the cross means that we're all messed up. And that the cross liberates us from hiding. Instead, we point up there and we see that we are forgiven. Friend, crazy faith is getting into community and letting people in our lives. Crazy faith is also that we pray tirelessly for our fellow Christians. That God has ordained it that by prayer, things happen. Do you know that? That in his sovereign grace, he has appointed prayer as the means of seeing his divinely orchestrated plan come about. Oh friend, be the church's prayer ministry. Pray with one another. 
gather together after the service to pray. Go into each other's homes to pray. In the silence of your own house, just pray. Pour over the members of the church. The direct way to bless someone is to pray. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He once said that true spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother even more than to a brother about Christ. Well, crazy faith is a faith that truly does believe God moves through prayer. Well, second, give your life to other Christians. Second, give your life to the church. Give your life to the bride of Christ whom Jesus died for. It's really an overflow or an implication of the last one. Give your time to the church. We see Noah, in obedience to God for 120 years, followed God's lead and command. It was no small task to build the ark. I want to encourage you not to see your time in Dubai as a spiritual parenthesis. It's not a parenthesis in your life as if you'll get serious again about your faith and about church life when you go back home. That you have a, a home church back there. That Dubai is just a break from serious church involvement. That you're just too busy here. Life is hard here. Maybe you're just coming here on Fridays to get your spiritual filling. But friends, don't treat the church like a petrol station. Right at a petrol station, you stop in usually when you're in a hurry, often in an inopportune time because your tank is empty. And so you go and you fill up and you go to the one most convenient to you. You get what you need and you move on. Maybe you do that. Maybe you stop by the church to get your fuel from the music or the teaching. Then you just hit the road back to your own plans, back to your own destination. No, but church involvement is radically different than a petrol station. The church isn't merely a place you swing by for a fill-up. The journey of the Christian faith is supposed to be made with other believers. As one pastor has said, the church isn't a petrol station, but it's the bus that I'm supposed to be traveling on with other believers. If the church is central to God's purpose, it should be central to our lives. Friends, if you're not yet a member of the church, join the church, even if you're just in Dubai for a short season. If this is the church you're attending and you live in Dubai, friend, this is your home church. This is your home. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the future. Live in the present. You're here. Live like it. Join the church. Now, crazy faith also means we give faithfully to the church. We give our money away to God and to his bride. Now, I don't know how Noah paid for everything, now, did God just drop the wood down on his yard magically every morning? Did he pay for it all? And if he didn't, he certainly did give up his job and his career so that for 120 years he could work for a not-for-profit job chopping down trees and making a boat. Say goodbye to his career, to his life as he knew it. Oh, friends, Crazy Faith says we live our lives in such a way. We take specific jobs in a way. We spend our money in a way. We give financially to the church in a way that shows the world that Jesus Christ is more valuable to us than anything else. My friend, we don't give loose change and dispendable money to God, but like Abel, we give our first fruits. We give our best. Not only that, but we give of our time. Right? I love hearing all the people in this church who gather at 6 a.m. at our church villa to load up everything so that we could have this service. I love seeing all the volunteers here on Friday morning serving. I love looking through the community group leader page and, and seeing all the faithful leaders who work hard to lead our Bible studies. 
My friends, we give of our time to the church. Let me give you one, a third thing, last thing. God's redeeming grace causes us to give our lives to non-believers. God's redeeming grace causes us to give our lives away to those who do not yet believe. This is what Noah did. We read in 2 Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For 120 years, not only did he build the ark, but he preached the message of salvation. He urged people to climb up onto the ark to be saved. He announced that judgment was coming. You know, I often ask myself, why don't I do the work of evangelism all the time? And my answer is because I don't love the lost the way God loves the lost. I know the judgment of God is coming, but I'm not stirred. My heart is not motivated. You know, I care more about my, rep- my reputation. I care more about my friendships. I care more about avoiding persecution, about avoiding pain. I care more about my life. My agenda. And so my mouth remains shut. Now, Noah likely faced persecution upon persecution, yet day upon day, he kept telling people that they had hope in God if they climbed onto the ark. Now, these final days of the flood, they must have been a conflicting time for Noah, right? It's a good day because he will be saved, but it's a sad day because his extended family, his friends, his neighbors, his past co-workers and others would perish. I mean, think about those last few minutes. Noah would have been crying out to the bitter end until the door was shut. He would have been inviting his neighbors to come in, come in to safety, come in to avoid judgment, come in, have faith in God, come into the ark. It's your only hope. And then slowly that door shut. The opportunity for repentance is gone. Oh, dear friends, I urge you to proclaim Christ in this land. There are so many in this land who have never heard of Jesus. There's so many in this land who are unreached and don't know Christ Jesus. Friends, hold him out to the world. Judgment is coming. Don't be scared. And don't worry about any persecution that might come. Don't worry about your reputation. Plead with lost people to come onto the ark. See, in the flood, there was only one place of safety, the ark. In the coming judgment, there will only be one place of safety in the arms of Christ. So call people to Christ so that one day when the waves and billows come crashing down on us, Christ will shield us from God's holy judgment. My friend, let us go to this great God now in prayer, asking him to do an amazing work in our land. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we look upon this passage, we are stunned by your redeeming grace. We are stunned about what you have done for us on the cross of Christ, what Jesus has done on the cross in dying for us. Oh, Father, we rejoice. We praise you. We thank you that your amazing grace stirs in our hearts a life of joy, a life of crazy faith. And Father, we pray that we would go out in this world giving of our lives up to other believers, to the church, to those in this non-believing world. Oh, Father, would we boldly proclaim truth to others. Oh, Father, would you bring many to Christ in the coming days? Would all see that our hope is built on nothing less than Christ Jesus and his righteousness? That indeed all we have is Jesus. That he is our ark of salvation. That he is our hope. 
that he is our comfort. Oh, Father, would many in this land hide in him and be saved. Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.